This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. And we are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know, dailygiving.org. I've been telling you about it for quite a while. We are now over 8,000, well over 8,000 daily donors, almost 8,100 at this point, giving to an incredible array of organizations, joining together as one unified Jewish people to benefit fabulous institutions that need generous support and that do so much for the community at large. So please go to dailygiving.org and become a donor today, as I am and as many of you already have done. I am very excited to introduce today's guest, Rabbi Mark Gottlieb, someone that I've known for a number of years. I participated in a program that he helped run through the Tikva Institute, where he is currently the dean, but he also has a celebrated past in Jewish education as a principal at Maimonides School in Boston, an MTA in New York, two of the flagship celebrated institutions of Jewish learning in the modern Orthodox framework in his own right, as a scholar, a Renaissance man, as an educator, as a thinker, and he also has a wonderful personal story of his own Jewish upbringing. So excited to bring him to you today. Meanwhile, a reminder is always to follow us on social media at Jews You Should Know, spelled out fully on Instagram and Facebook. Jews You Should Know with the letter U on Twitter. Comments, questions to Jews You Should Know at gmail.com. Subscribe wherever you're listening. If that's on an iPhone, click the plus sign in the upper right hand corner to what's now called follow everywhere else you can subscribe whether that's spotify google or any podcast application and now to our conversation with tikva dean and longtime educator and principal rabbi mark gottlieb we are here with rabbi mark gottlieb a senior director of the tikva fund dean of the tikva summer institute at yale university a long-time Jewish day school principal, among other hats that he's worn. How are you, Rabbi? I'm great, Rabari. It's it's wonderful to be with you today. Uh, thanks so much for having me. Such an honor to have you. And uh, obviously, we've gotten to know each other over the years in different capacities. I participated uh, in, in a Tikva program myself and through family connections and all yes, kinds of different <laughs> uh, overlays. But um I wanted to kind of get your your background story, which I, I've never actually heard myself, despite all of our uh, our, our points of connection. So take us to the beginning. Uh, where are you from? And really, even going back a little bit beyond that, where's your family from? What's kind of the the origin story of uh, of Mark Gottlieb? Sure. So I grew up in Queens, New York. I was born in 1969, into I would say a traditional but not orthodox Jewish family. My dad was born in Detroit in 1924. Uh, He served in the United States Navy in World War II. That was something I was always proud of. He did not face any combat, but he did patrol the waters around the Panama Canal zone. And uh, after the Navy, he worked for Pepsi-Cola in South America and finally landed in the world of insurance, personal life insurance, Not a high-powered insurance salesman, but a very dependable, reliable. He had his own little beat, and he would, you know, walk around the debit, and then eventually an office position. My mom was born in Brooklyn, the great borough of Brooklyn. I remember from the the Welcome Back Cotter years. I don't know if that that probably precedes you, Ari, but I have reruns, reruns, the reruns. So like, (laughs) welcome to the third or fourth largest city in in. In America, you know, the borough of Brooklyn. Yes. Um, and she was born to a Romanian-Hungarian father. Uh, he was born in Chernovitz and then made his way to the United States. He, my grandfather, was a very important man in my life, uh, very profoundly influential in my story, as hopefully we'll we'll get to. My grandma was born herself in Brooklyn and was a school teacher for 40 plus years. I used to go to Florida. They they moved my grandparents, my mom's parents moved from Brooklyn to South Beach, Florida in the mid 70s. And I I spent most of my winter vacations growing up 
in Florida and then in California when they moved in the mid 80s, very close to my grandparents. My grandparents were really the spiritual and religious influence. They insisted that I go to yeshiva day school. So I remember I remember visiting the local public school in Hollis, Queens when I was a little kid and, you know, touring the building or whatever you do on these tours. And my grandparents said, just no, he's going to go to yeshiva. And were, were uh, they strictly observant themselves. So by that time in their lives, by the time I came around and by the time I, 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 you know, became close and spent a lot of my every, basically every Pesach was with my grandparents and every winter break. By then they were observant. They were, I would say Shomer Shabbos. Um, my grand, I visibly and, and vividly remember my grandfather, you know, davening, putting on towels, filling every day, going, trying to go to a minion when he could. They were not Orthodox growing up. They attended the Flatbush Jewish Center, which was kind of a conservative bastion in, in Flatbush in those years in the 50s and 60s, early 70s. But very, my, my grandfather, who was not even a high school graduate, he was a high school dropout to work. He was very well read, very literate in, in Jewish philosophy, Jewish thought, Jewish history. His bookcase had things, you know, it, now I take it for granted. I, I'm sitting in a big room with a lot of books, but he had many books for me in a home in my apartment in Queens. There weren't really many books. He had books. He had Rabbi Soloveitchik and Abraham Joshua Heschel, and he had um, Solzhenitsyn, and he had Rav Hirsch. He just had, you know, I would say the literate man or the, the literate Jew in the 20th century's bookshelf. And that made an, a pre- profound impact on me. I, I became an avid reader and always interested in religion and philosophy and theology and history. And I attribute it to his his bookcase, his bookshelf. But it sounds like he became observant later on. Yeah, I think when his mother died, he, he started saying Kaddish for her every day. And, and that triggered some kind of religious awakening, some kind of religious renaissance. I never got the full story, but that's how I reconstructed it. And like I said, by the time I came along, you know, in the early 70s, spending a lot of time with my with my grandparents, they were the only from relatives that I had, and they were profoundly influential on me. It's just exceedingly rare in that generation for someone to go in in that direction. It's very countercultural at that time. You know, most people of his generation were sliding away from tradition, you know, maybe holding on to some sort of vestiges you know, in, in the in the suburbs and, you know, conservative synagogue or something. But to, to have that sort of resurgence of formal observance, I think was was quite rare, was it not? I, I mean, it certainly, it, it felt rare when I looked around the synagogue that I grew up in, which eventually turned, it, it turned from a traditional synagogue, which had section, men-only section, women-only section, and a mixed section, that generation was either dying out or, or falling away from their particular form of faith, and more Orthodox people were moving into the neighborhood. So by the time my bar mitzvah came around, the Hollywood Jewish Center became an Orthodox shul, and, and subsequently, in, under great leadership, Rabbi Menachem Penner, Mark Penner, um, Rabbi Rafi Butler was really the the rabbi who who saw that transition uh, under his watch, but. You know, I, I certainly have a lot of hakaras atov for the leadership of, of Hollywood Jewish Center that preceded these rabbis that were helping me become more observant. How old were you when your grandfather passed away? I was 22 years old when my grandfather passed away. Wow. He passed away the year, the year that I was uh, in Eretz Yisrael when I was married and learning in the Gris Kolel. Beautiful. And Beautiful. By, then, by then they had been living in uh, the Bay Area in California, in Cupertino, California, uh, for about six or seven years to be closer to my aunt, who who was really able to help them in in both of my grandfather and grandmother's later years. They were, uh, I guess, helping found Apple or something like that at the time. <laughs> <laughs> my, my my uncle, my uncle Mike uh, Mike Corn worked for IBM. Actually, he was one of the first to move out from the East Coast to the West Coast in in the early 70s, I think in 73, 74, something like that. Interesting, interesting. So what was your early yeshiva experience like? I mean, was it a, was there any dissonance given that your own immediate family was not all that observant and yet you were drawn intellectually to, to 
you know, studying all these different topics. Yeah, no, for a number of years, I, I was definitely living kind of a divided life, a dual life, you know, not quite Shomer Shabbos yet, not quite Shomer Kashrus yet. I, I, I have, <laughs> I have memories of lots of trafe restaurants and, and lots of uh, places that, that, you know, I enjoyed in those days. Uh, I don't want to wax too poetic about my <laughs> my love of bacon, um, but uh, you know, I hope I've done tshuva on, on on all of that. But the truth is that until I was in about sixth grade, fifth, sixth grade, things were not so clear or integrated in my life. But by the time a little before my bar mitzvah, I made you know a con- increasingly more conscious decisions to make sure that I was living a, a life that reflected what I was learning in yeshiva, reflected the lives of my friends that were, again, hugely significant in my life as an only child. I'm an only child, which definitely played, a, I think, a pretty oversized role in, in my formation psychologically and, and just how, how my life unfolded, the things that I was able to do because I was an only child, the things that I needed because I was an only child. I needed friendship. And and I was very blessed to have incredible friends growing up in yeshiva in elementary school and high school. I became a Ben Bias in, in so many different homes around Queens, in Queens, mostly in Kew Garden Hills and Hillcrest and in um, Jamaica States. And I just was very lucky to to find many families that, that were very kind to me. And I felt lucky that my parents, although at the time, I don't think I would have expressed it this way, that my parents were willing to let to let me go and to let me pursue my own passion and and find those families that would be adoptive homes for me as I was becoming from. What's interesting is, I mean, fifth or sixth grade is quite a young age or even, even before bar mitzvah. You know, you say you started deepening your, solidifying your commitment to a more observant lifestyle. That's a fairly young age to be doing so out of purely, you know, rational or intellectual reasons. Would you say that it was that that was the driving force at the time, or it was more just as out of a desire to sort of create a coherent, you know, to, to bring some coherence to your to your lifestyle? Yeah, I, I think probably the latter. I can't think of a moment, a specific moment that I I was makabel upon myself. Okay, now I'm not gonna be Michal Shabbos, or now I'm gonna really observe kasher strictly in the home, outside of the home. I think it was circumstance and a growing sense that I was living this dual, in some ways, fragmented life. And and that, I don't think, sat well with me. I don't think at that age, I would have been able to fully articulate the religious awakening as as a definitive decision, as, as, a, as a kind of um, real acceptance, you know, of a total life of, of mitzvahs and, and, and Torah. But the combination of, of my increasing interest in learning in Yiddishkeit and the social structures and social life that I had begun to, to really solidify around just made those decisions not necessary, but, but more, more natural under those circumstances. I guess as, as often is the case, you know, we, we are you know, complex beings and very often the, the intellectual pursuit or the investigation some might say cynically justification often you know follows the you know the emotional choice or the emotional commitments that we make uh, in our lives so it sounds like you kind of were, were were committed to this life and then began deepening the sort of the exploration of that on a more you know on a more academic level definitely on a more deliberate and more thoughtful level you know as i got older and certainly through high school that was already you know a period of of really peak um, commitment to the point where I was becoming, you know, a real nuisance to my parents about looking for kashra, you know, hashkacha labels in the in the house. My parents, <laughs> my parents always maintained, and and this is sort of somewhat naive, but it's for me, it's nostalgic to think about. My my father always insisted that he kept a kosher home, and and he tried. I mean, we never brought trace meat into the house ever, but it, it was, you know, by today's kosher standards, it would not have passed muster as as a fully, you know, orthodox kosher home. But then I became a bit of a tyrant and, <laughs> you know, and dishes and, and kashras and hashkachas. And, but uh, my parents, 
my parents were very forgiving and and very understanding and and they loved me very much as an only child they, there was certainly no loss of love for me as a young person growing up so i, well, I very, highly very concentrated blessed. love yeah <laughs> a lot of a lot of concentrated love yes so who were some of the influences, I would say, intellectually at that point, as you said, sort of coming into your own in high school and and really beginning to develop a, a sense of not just, you know, that that feeling for Judaism, but that appreciation of it, you know, on a, on a more academic level or understanding of Judaism. Who, who were those influences as you grew up? Sure. So by the time, you know, high school rolls around, so I'm already in... A, you know, like a mass medium shear at MTA and surrounded by friends that take learning seriously as much as a modern Orthodox, you know, 15, 16 year old. It's it's not, you know, it, it's not the Mir or, or, you know, Chaim Berlin or, you know, Shara Torah, even in Queens, it, it's, it's MTA. But we, we were very lucky to have some incredible rebellion in MTA. And as a junior, I, was Zoha, I was really, really privileged to have Rabbi Mayor Tursky as a Rebbe. Really? Um, wow. Who spent wow. So he was in the high school as a Rebbe. Yeah, he spent three years in, in MTA, in the high school, before moving on to, to the base medrash, to, to the yeshiva. But that was a fantastic year of growth, of pushing pushing me to, to learn, pushing me to think about what it meant to be a bentora the kind of demands intellectually and in terms of a of a vision of of frumkite were very powerful and and you know very motivating and so he was definitely a, a you know a significant role model just his mere presence let alone the substance of the learning that we did was very powerful the very same year i met another rebbe who would continue to be a major figure in my life you know, Ad Hayom um, and that's Rabbi Mayor Schiller. Rabbi Mayor Schiller was a Rebbe at that coach. time. He was a hockey coach, yes. Right. Uh, by then he was coaching for MTA, but he was not yet teaching at MTA. He was not yet a Rebbe at MTA. He was a Rebbe at OTI, which was a, a smaller boys only um, yeshiva in Queens, where many of my closest friends from both elementary school, from Dove Revel, where I attended, and then new, you know, friends that I'd met it, through those friends in high school, he was a Rebbe there. And I met Rabbi Schiller. I remember the first time I met Rabbi Schiller, we were, <laughs> I was on my way to England with a, another couple of really close friends. And that was kind of an adventure, a young, young person's adventure. But I remember a Shabbaton that the very first real interaction with Rabbi Schiller was a Shabbaton at OTI that that I was able to attend. And I was just riveted by this man, you know, looking, you know, very imposing stature and figure, Hasidic garb. But when he spoke, he spoke with such breadth of learning and such passion, uh, not only for the worlds of Torah and mitzvahs and Avodah Hashem, but for the worlds of truth and goodness and beauty in the broader culture, in the culture of the West, uh, the culture of Europe, other faiths, taking those other faiths seriously without compromising his own Amunus Videos, but really taking the cultural and literary achievements of, of Christianity, especially, very, very seriously. And we were talking about the Rambam and Ramban on the body and Aquinas and Augustine, and how these figures, while not being the same, of course, but there were certain affinities and certain counterintuitive dimensions of their thinking of the Rambam's thinking about the body versus the Ramban and how that played a role in views of sexuality. And, and it was just fascinating. This great, you know, serious Talmud Chacham, who's also you know, so not only fluent, but interested in, in these other intellectual traditions. And then later on, that within a month or so of that Shabbaton, we went for a field trip to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And the idea that you could be a bentora and see the beauty of HaKadosh Baruch Hu's creation and the beauty of man's creative abilities to live it. You know, modern orthodoxy pays a lot of lip service to the idea of Torah v'chachma, Torah umada, you know, Torah Derech Eretz, but to actually 
find someone who who really seemed to live this seriously. And he was also a huge sports fan. You alluded to this a little earlier, Ari, that he was a hockey coach, but he was a big sports fan. So I was just, I was just smitten. I was just totally, I was so taken by this, this approach, this, this approach to Avodah Hashem. The irony being it wasn't embodied by a, a modern Orthodox, at least modern Orthodox looking Jew is embodied by a square right. chassid. <laughs> yes, indeed, indeed. And, and look, I, I, I think, uh, you know, th- so those two very different rabbinic figures kind of punctuated my high school experience in a very profound way. And Baruch Hashem, you know, I, I'm still in touch with both. And uh, I feel very fortunate to have uh, to have wandered into their, you know, shear room or, or, you know, sports arena. Um, we did summer camps. Rabbi Shila had these wonderful learning camps that had sports leagues and, and trips to the museums and some films. And so that gives you a window into sort of how how my religious development unfolded in those very critical years. Essentially, I don't know Rabbi Schiller really personally at, at all, actually. He's a Jew to know. He's a he Jew, Jew that Jew. you should know. I, I should interview him. Um, you should definitely his, interview I, him. I wrote, I read his book, his memoir. Uh, it was The Road Back or The Road Home. I forgot what it's called. The Road exactly. Back. The Road Back. And, uh, but, I, but I also know through students of his that I became friendly with over my own, you know, uh, my own uh, time in my early 20s and or late teens that he is very, uh, you know, very active and, and thoughtful about the politics and he's very uh, politically conservative, um, you know, but in, in sort of that really intellectual tradition of, of conservatism, which, you know, is something that I know you're engaged with now. I'm, I'm curious if early on he was a political influence on you. Oh, yes. <laughs> I mean, early on, he was a total influence. <laughs> um, not that, you know, I, I think I already had some powers of discernment at that age to sort of see the things that that naturally advance you know my own interests but he was a such a dominating figure not not in a way that was ever you know oppressive god forbid or, or he in fact in a way that m- many people who would suggest or claim that his politics are too too radical he was always open unlike many others who profess sort of an openness in in thinking he truly was and is remains a thinker who's who's really open to debate, open to seeing things from another perspective, open to being to being moved himself in different ways. So there's no question that that the interests that Rabbi Schiller introduced or or helped foster, I think of a good example. I love the writings of C.S. Lewis. Now, I Rabbi Schiller did not introduce me to C.S. Lewis, but he certainly stoked the flames of of love and and interest in C.S. Lewis. And I think that would hold true for, you know, for for my general political interests and and my my perspective, which again doesn't reduce itself to partisan politics as much as sort of a, a, a cultural or philosophical route, although to pretend to avoid politics wholly and to to be above politics or a quietism, I, I think that that's probably not wise and i think as i've gotten older i i've i've seen a little bit more the the need to engage in politics not just in political philosophy although my my temperament is certainly more far more engaged by and, and energized by political thought than hard-nosed you know rough and tumble politics well, it seems like now everything is you know is tinged by politics and in, in that in that sort of practical or concrete sense it's hard to avoid. Unfortunately, that that that's that's not a a great feature of our of our late modern world here. Yeah. Well, one other question just about that formative period, that high school period. If I'm doing the math correctly, it sounds like that would probably be the the mid '80s, early mid '80s. Right. Yep. So I would imagine that Rabbi Soloveitchik was still a looming presence at the Yeshiva University campus, where for those unfamiliar, you know, MTA or the Manhattan Torah Academy's campus, it, it, it's the high school of Yeshiva University. So Rabbi Soloveitchik was was still I don't know the height of his power is it where was he in this No actually this un- point? unfortunately by the time that I arrived at at the Yeshiva University campus in in 1983 uh the rub was still present and the you know he was still giving shear but within a year or two he really his health deteriorated significantly and and by I I know this 
um, the timing, I know it pretty well because when I was in Rabbi Tversky's shear, which was 85, 86, so in the fall of 85, Rabbi Tversky was giving the Chazara shear for the Rav, for his grandfather, the, the review, Rav. The review lesson, yeah. Right, the review lesson. And in November or the beginning, in the first semester, in, in the fall of 85, the Rav goes back to Boston and, and does not come back to New York. So even though he, he didn't stopped, pass away till he didn't pass away till nineteen ninety three, right ninety three. Yeah, yeah, but in eighty five already, in that first period of of the academic or that the academic year eighty five eighty six, the Rav is is really spending his last days at yeshiva. Rabbi Tversky is giving the review shear, and uh, I have this maybe imagined vision of walking on Amsterdam Avenue past the Morgenstern dormitory. And seeing an elderly figure with boys, and by then he was actually giving the shear in the morgue, I think in the morgue hall in the in the in the room right outside of his apartment that he had. He had an apartment for many many years in the Morgenstern Hall dormitory, and I I think I saw the rub, but it could just be a fantasy. It could be just <laughs> wish fulfillment and and sort of wishful thinking on my part that I actually ever saw the Rav, but I, I was not Zoha, I was not privileged to ever hear the Rav live. I've listened to lots of tapes, uh, of course, in the in the intervening years, but but I never I never met the Rav, sadly, very sadly for me. And uh I certainly by those years I was reading the Rav, I was reading the Rav's writings and certainly becoming very interested in in, in his thought and his Torah and his philosophy, which I think is hangs together in an integrated uh, whole. Um, by the time I was uh, an early admissions freshman at Yeshiva University, I was studying with Rabbi Shalom Karmi, uh, a, a very special thinker and, and friend to this day, a longtime editor of the journal Tradition and professor of Jewish philosophy and Bible in, in Yeshiva University, Yeshiva College, an, another very important influence. So by the time I was an early admissions freshman that year, would have been 86, 87, I was studying the Rav in college with Rabbi Carmi and becoming more of, a, less of an amateur and more of a, not a professional, but, you know, someone that had, I had a hadracha and I had, you know, someone with a mesora, let's put it that way, someone with a real tradition of how to, how to think about the Rav, how to read the Rav. So, as you were emerging out of high school and going, I imagine spending some time in Israel as sort of de rigueur, um, did you have a sense early on that you were going to make a career of education, rabbinics? Did you did you have a designs on a pulpit? What was kind of your, you know, your early thinking about what what you would actually do with your life? Yeah. So my initial thinking coming out of yeshiva college and smicha was that I was going to be a, a philosophy professor. As ambi- it sounded ambitious, but remember, as an only child, I, I had a lot of confidence. Uh, <laughs> maybe more more confidence that was than than was warranted. <laughs> because the truth is it was very hard to just get into graduate school, let alone to to start to plan or anticipate a professional degree. But I I by the time I got to graduate school, I we moved my I had, I got married in 1991. I was 22. I had just finished. That was my bar mitzvah. My bar mitzvah, by the way. Just Your bar mitzvah. Putting that out there. Hey. Yeah. October. Okay. What? What? When? In, uh, when in '91? I got married June. June 11. Uh, be, not not at the same weekend. <laughs> okay. <No problem. laughs> um. So my wife and I, we spent our wonderful first year Shana Rishona at the Gruss Kolel in Jerusalem. I was waiting to hear back from graduate schools that year, and despite being told by some important people at the university at Yeshiva College that I would, you know, I would get in and I I would do, you know, well, I didn't get into to any of the schools on my first round of applications, which was a very devastating, again, for an only child that that tended to get what what he wanted. I did not get that. I did not get what I wanted. But thankfully, I was able to benefit from the wisdom of of Professor David Schatz, who was a wonderful mentor of mine, especially in in my growing interest in philosophy and academic philosophy. 
I, I should have, of course, consulted with him in the first place, which <laughs> the fact that I didn't do is a kasha is <laughs> more of a kasha on, on, you know, why I didn't get in. But thanks to Dr. Schatz and another professor, visiting professor, Joshua Golding, who is a wonderful philosopher, from philosopher at Bellarmine College in Kentucky, uh, but it's a very strong analytic philosopher, did his graduate work at NYU. And both of those individuals helped me shape a better application. And when I came back to the States, my first real job in Chinuch was at the first school. And I was a Rebbe there teaching Gemara and Chumash and coaching tennis. Um, that's how I met my wife. I was a tennis coach at Camp Morasha. Oh, look at that. You know, if your if, if our audience could see me now, they'd they'd say, Wow, how could this guy have been a tennis coach? He doesn't look like a tennis coach. Anyway, so that year I reapplied, the year that I was teaching at Frisch, and Baruch Hashem, I was I was able to get into a couple of strong programs and I went to the University of Chicago. But I slowly or <laughs> slowly or quickly realized that I wasn't probably good enough to be a philosopher that would be able to have his choice of where to, to work and to, to pursue a profession, it's hard. The humanities, this is, and again, this is like 30, this is 25 years ago, very competitive to get positions. Today it's worse. And there's an extra overlay of ideological considerations. The, the, econom, you know, the economics of university life have changed, I think, dramatically. But also, I don't know if I had the zisflash. I, I don't, I, I don't want to pretend that this was just kind of a decision that I made, you know, from the lofty heights of reason and and prudence and and uh, wisdom. But I, I really love Jewish education. I love philosophy. Still love philosophy. But it, that wasn't the life that was going to allow me to raise a, a you know a family, a you know a healthy big family, God willing. And it's very hard. And I, I'm very impressed by people that go into academia today from people that go into academia today, especially in the humanities. It's, it's, very, it's very hard. But I was lucky, very lucky in that while I was working on my dissertation, I was approached by the Maimonides School, which was the Rav's school that he founded back in, in the late 30s to come be their principal. And, and that was amazing something- because you didn't have any administrative experience, right? Yeah. They realized once I got there, they realized that, and I'm not sure. (laughs) (laughs) No, but, uh, I, I learned so much on the job and, and I, I was obviously starstruck that it was Maimonides school and it was the Rub school. And I, I got to work with Mrs. Twersky with the Rub's daughter, um, who was my boss, real Isha Chashuva, a real grand, grand dame of, of, Jewish education. Uh, and then I guess being the wife of the late professor Isidore Tversky, who was a, yes. a great Harvard professor of Near Eastern studies. Yes, indeed. Indeed. So what did you learn as an administrator kind of about yourself? And oh, the I learned a lot about myself. Already. <laughs> and the difference between administration and education, which are really two almost entirely distinct fields. Yeah. I, I, you know, I learned that it's the little things that really matter most. It's, it's, you know, returning the phone calls, you know, getting the bus schedules down. It's not the lofty rhetoric, which, you know, I, I that was easier for me. The, the rhetoric was easier for me. The, the nitty gritty was harder. And I, I learned that that was a vital, absolutely necessary part of the, of the job. And, and it was hard. It was hard because that wasn't, that wasn't where I was naturally gifted, but I had to work at it. And I'd like to think that I got better. I, I think I did, but it was very demanding. It was very, it was, it was going against the grain of, of my own, you know, dispositions and sense of sensibilities. And it was a real baptism by fire. And ultimately, it sounds like you left, although you continued in administration, if I'm, if I'm, uh, yeah, no, I, I, I was there five years and I was offered towards the end of that five year tenure. I was, I was approached by Yeshiva University at that time. It was Hillel Davis was the vice president working closely with President Richard Joel and an incredible board leadership, Miriam Goldberg. I was approached to, to come lead my alma mater 
as the head of school. And, and that was a very exciting prospect for many reasons, partially because it would allow my wife and I to come back to New York, which we had been in Chicago for seven and a half years in Boston for five years. Great cities. We learned a lot about the Jewish communities in, in both of those places. And, and it gave us real perspective on, on the value of, of, you know, smaller town. I'm not Chicago and Boston, not smaller. Yeah, it's hard to call it small town. <laughs> compared to, a, compared to, to New York. Um, but these are great communities with their own cultures. I mean, Boston's complicated. I think the the economics of Boston and the dynamics of Boston are complicated. Chicago, I think, has a very strong infrastructure around the from community, both the more yeshiva community, yeshiva community, the more modern Orthodox or Dati Livumi community. But those are great years. But to, the, the chance to come back to New York was certainly very attractive. But even more, it was. It was my alma mater that had really been a part of, of now this new vision for Yeshiva University, which was very exciting. What were they trying to do differently or, or new? Well, I mean, the whole university was, was now, you know, under the leadership and, and the, the mystique of, of Richard Joel, who was a, an impressive leader in, in, in so many ways. No better motivator and, and portrait of possibilities was very much, I think, President Joel's gift, his gift for connecting with people. So the idea that the high school would be embraced in a new way, allowed to be the lab school for the college, for the university, allowed to have a kind of privileged status within the family of programs and schools in the university, in the university community was was quite enticing, quite exciting. And and certainly it was delivered upon. I mean, what we were able to do at MTA in those years, increasing the number of classes, reducing class sizes, creating an honors program, creating a base medrash, creating a learning center. These were things that had not happened before and that were possible with the leadership. Incredibly innovative things like a, an exchange program with Yeshiva at Mokor Chaim with Rav Dov Zingers, Rabbi Steinsaltz's Zichron Levracha's Yeshiva in Eretz Yisrael. You know, if you if you made a compelling case that this would benefit the Yeshiva and the Talmidim, Mrs. Goldberg and, and the university were behind it. And that was exciting to be a part of. There's, there's always a risk when you return to a, a location that you've that's been so formative and that that you have such kind of nostalgia for. Of kind of, you know, demystifying it and, and sort of losing it, <laughs> you know, it's a lure. You get into the actual, you go to the, you know, kind of where the sausage is made in the background yes. there, dealing with the politics and dealing with all the, you know, all the, the realities of a. Of there was no mystique. The, the MTA of my day, you know, except for some of the Rebaim that I've mentioned or that, that were there, a couple of teachers here and there. It was not a place that would easily be mistaken for, uh, <laughs> for greatness. So there was no, there was no nostalgia that was There's no risk of undermining you know, my or eyes or, some sort of uh, yeah, no. full utopian vision. It, it was definitely a project, a different sort of project. And we had it. I, I, I never, you know, having worked only at two other, you know, three, three others at Frisch, Ida Crown and Maimonides, those years in MTA felt very fresh and felt very possible with, you know, lots of lots of opportunity, lots of possibility. And you know, I attribute that chiefly, almost overwhelmingly to, to Mrs. Miriam Goldberg, who is our board chair, who really wanted the school to be the best school possible. And whatever it would take, she was behind. That, that's to get that kind of support and the respect for the professionals that, that she had was, I would say, fairly rare. Right to have that that synergy with a uh, lay, lay lay leadership and professional leadership and that respective kind of their uh, respective domains or the uh, areas of of, of expertise. Uh, so eventually, though, you did leave MTA and not only MTA, but you kind of left the world of formal Jewish education. Obviously, you will talk about Tikva now, but you are still in the in the world of education. And I see, I, I see. When people ask me what I do, I still say I'm an educator. Educator, but it's a very different kind of education. Uh, it's it's much you know it's focused in a completely different or much narrower sphere in a sense. And it's you know narrower and wider. 
narrower and wider. Okay, so you're gonna have to defend narrower, that claim. Yeah. <laughs> but but when did you leave? When did you leave, and why? And and what? And what? And and towards what? Or for what? Yeah. So I think it was probably my fourth year, fifth, fourth or fifth year at MTA, where I I was reunited with a young man who I had met when he was an undergraduate at Williams College, and I was a graduate student at the University of Chicago, Eric Cohen, who had, was recently at that point appointed the executive director of the Tikva Fund. It's, it's a funny story because I met Eric Cohen at a conference 10 years earlier, and we were probably the only two Jews at this conference. And, you know, we had a lovely exchange for, I don't know, an hour or so together, but we didn't keep in touch. And we kind of both went on our own merry ways. And, you know, he went on to a life of, of journalism and working for the President's Council on Bioethics with Leon Cast and founding the New Atlantis, some impressive journalistic and political and, uh, and activism roles. And, and I went on to these educational roles in, in Boston and New York. And the person that introduced, the person that reintroduced us was Rabbi Mayor Soloveitchik which was very cute because I had met Rabbi Meir Soloveitchik when he was a young Talmud. Um, he was a chavrusa of my brother-in-law. It's a whole story, but the, the short version of it is that I had met Mayor Soloveitchik many years earlier. Had, had, you know, He's given getting him roasted something. in about five days, by the way, at the, uh, the annual commentary uh, roast. Oh, yes, that... yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot, to get to him on the show. a lot of material there. I'm <laughs> trying to get him on the show, by the way. So you're uh, worried. He, he, he said he'll do it, but he's very busy. So he is very on. busy. He's not lying. I could tell. I could, it, I could definitely attest that he is telling the truth. He's very busy, but I'm very persistent. So we're going we're gonna to get it. <laughs> you got to be persistent. So, um, so anyway, fast forward to now 2008 or something like that, 2009. And Mayor Salvechik is taking Eric around YU and he's in the MTA lobby. And I happen to be walking by and, you know, oh, Mark, you know, I want you to meet someone. And he says, this is Eric Cohen. This is Mark. We immediately recognized each other, the names, certainly. And uh, that generated a whole new stage of conversations about the life of, of the mind and modern orthodoxy, the prospects of teaching the humanities from a Jewish lens, but deeply engaging in the literature, the philosophy, the economics, the politics of the West. And, and so I started doing some consulting, part-time consulting for the Tikva Fund, um, eventually helping build a, a program for high school students. Initially, we were inserting courses, partnering with mostly modern Orthodox schools at our height. It had 13, we had 13 schools in this in this program and sometime after that eric asked me to come on board and join full-time tikva and my first reaction and my first response was no and that was actually the response for about a year and then another year passed and it was a very difficult decision to leave mta because i loved what i was doing at mta and we were doing a lot of good things at mta and i had incredible support but after that second approach, I just realized that Tikva was offering something totally different. Tikva was offering something totally unrivaled in the world that I was familiar with. This ability to really engage in a high level, you know, the the not just sound bites and 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 slogans, but deep inquiry into the foundational questions of Jewish life and and human life. What is the good life? What what is a good polity? What are the relationship between the, the genders? What should they be in a world that's infused by Jewish tradition, by both Jewish law and Jewish thought and Jewish literature? And I just the prospect of being in involved in a in a educational institute, which was also a, a think tank, was very enticing. And I I, I said yes. And that was uh, almost eleven years ago. Can you just give us a 30,000 sort of foot view of what is Tikva? How did it emerge? Uh, what was its, what were its sort of its, its policy goals or its educational goals? Sure. Tikva is an educational institute that also produces high level intellectual content 
and also serves as a kind of think tank for young leadership that could really be the next generation Mayor Soloveitchik. Who's going to be who's going to replace Mayor Soloveitchik? Thank God he's young. He's got a lot of years ahead. But who who's going to replace Ruth Weiss? Who's going to be the next Joe Lieberman? Who's going to be, you know, the next Ron Dermer? So Tikva is very committed to identifying and helping cultivate this next generation of Jewish intellectual leaders, Jewish political leaders, Jewish, you know, social and communal leaders, thought leaders. We do that through a variety of of different modalities and different means. We publish the Jewish Review of Books, a quarterly journal. We publish Mosaic Magazine, a daily web magazine. We publish a book series with Princeton University Press called The Jewish Ideas. We have a ton now of podcasts and digital content, classes, lectures, but the heart and soul of Tikva's education, of educating mostly younger people, students now from grade seven through graduate school and young young professionals. Um, we have traditionally educated adults who are practitioners and, and professionals in their respective fields, some of the best, best you know, representatives of their respective fields, all from a Jewish and culturally and politically conservative perspective, but one that cherishes real debate and real inquiry. In other words, we're, we're not neutral, but we take arguments seriously. So in that sense, we we both are trying to cultivate a sense of real debate and in the spirit of the liberal arts and the humanities, finding, you know, taking a journey and not saying where you're going to go from the beginning, but really letting the texts take you where they may. But we combine that with a sense of principled focus on the most foundational commitments Jewishly and from a conservative point of view of the centrality of the family the importance of the market not to be unregulated in a sense of wild, you know, in Rand capitalism or 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 indivi- radical individualism, but certainly not socialism either. So, you know, we have, I think, complicated views on some really complicated issues. And, you know, the role of the family today is so much a battleground, frankly, for, you know, questions of, of gender, questions of sexuality. There isn't a lot of sophisticated, thoughtful material out there on these contested themes and questions, but we try to provide that. And we're working in Israel now as well, Ari. We're working... Yes, you Rabbi Pfeffer, of course. Rabbi Pfeffer, uh, Amiad Cohen is our uh, CEO in Israel, really trying to create a real conservative movement in Israel, which is, that's truly new. That That is really innovative in the sense that America, you say, well, there are AEI and EPPC and... Hudson, and there are lots of institutions that are devoted to conservatism in America, but in Israel, there really isn't. And that's why Tikva in Israel is is particularly critical and important. Even, even though there is a strong, and it has now become like a strong sort of right-leaning country, you, you feel like the intellectual... Not, that's on national security questions. It's not It's not necessarily around questions of economics. It's it's growing. I mean, the you know, the, I think tech and, and, the, and the startup culture Startup nation, you know, to not coin a phrase, but to borrow a phrase, is certainly pushing the economic world closer to a free market. But there's still more work to be done when a country has such a a deep history with a a certain way of, of viewing wealth and a certain way of viewing ownership and industry. It takes time to undo that, or it takes time to to offer alternatives. So. You know, I think on on also on governance, you know, questions of constitutionalism, which, of course, Israel doesn't have a constitution, but that's, per, you know, precisely part of the challenge. The judiciary, Tikva has now launched its own law and liberty society modeled after the Federalist Society here in the United States. That's a tremendous innovation in the cultural and intellectual and judicial life of, of Israel. Of course, there you have the added layer of religion and state issues being so much more complicated. Of course. And those are issues that are complicated, you know, by the growing Haredi population, which we we honor. Someone like a Rabbi Yoshua Pfeffer can authentically speak as a from Haredi Jew, but also identify some of the challenges in a in a incisive insider way that, you know, Haredi life that is increasingly more isolated or, or, or behind a thick wall continue to to create those challenges and, and 
that that's I think very fertile ground that Tikva is now working in in in, in Israel, especially. I think many people would would critique the the synthesizing of religion and politics, and in particular, sort of the the tinging of religion with a particular brand of politics, whatever brand that might be, and say, well, you know, Judaism, Orthodox Judaism, you know, Torah Judaism, whatever we'll call it, is not, you know, conservative, it's not liberal, it's, you know, issue by issue, it, it's its own domain. Is there a danger in sort of identifying, even if, even if it's open to debate and discussion, but sort of coming at Judaism from a particular political persuasion, both practically in terms of alienating certain Sub, you know, subsects of the population, but also intellectually, does it become a complicated, you know, endeavor when we're we're not talking about uh, something that's a political ideology? We're talking about a religion that might be multifaceted or, or variegated in its in its outlooks. Sure, I, I think that's exactly right, Ari. I, I would support what what you just said fully in the sense that Judaism transcends right and left. Judaism as a faith and as a worldview and as a religious system should never be reduced to right and left. Having said that, I think if you look at many of the elements, especially when it comes to the family, I think the e- economics is complicated. Economics is, I think, a much more complex area where questions of, of trying, to, trying to extract or reconstruct a Jewish theology of economics from Tanakh and Chazal layered on to the industrialization of the modern world. I mean, we're in a Shemitah year, so it's no better time to identify both the, the strengths and the limitations of a naive view of Jewish economics coming straight out of Tanakh and Chazal, in the sense that, you know, today the economic system is not premised on those same assumptions and, and how that plays out. So I think, as you say, issue by issue, but I, I would argue that if you look issue by issue, you know, from my vantage point, of course, most of the issues that we are fighting or or that are contentious today, whether it's, you know, how to interpret the Texas abortion laws and their legality and the constitutionality to questions of charter schools and religious schools and funding, you know, funding for religious schools to questions of marriage and the sanctity of the family and questions of gender and transsexualism and, and, and homosexuality. These issues, I think, if you look at Jewish tradition and you look at Jewish tradition with an unjaundiced eye, meaning an eye that is looking internally through the tradition and not going to yoke on modern ideologies or, or more recent political, ideological, cultural categories on the tradition, I think that many, many issues you'd find a greater affinity from the point of view of Jewish tradition with what the conservatives that I subscribe, again, not partisan, not based on party per se, but just an intellectual tradition. I think the tradition of Burke and Kirk and, you know, Chazoni, you know, to look from 200 years ago to today, I think that's a more authentic representation of the Jewish, you know, point of view or Judeo-Christian point of view, which I do think exists at at a cultural and moral level, if not at a halachic level, obviously, um, I think you would just find that in many, you know, case after case or issue after issue, there'd be a closer affinity. I'm not saying that in every respect, and, and I think the case of economics is is a is a good one. Although, again, if your economics is only free market or Ayn Rand or even Chicago School of Economics, so then you'd find a disjoint between Judaism, perhaps. But if if you have a more federalist or more localist perspective, which is now making a comeback in the conservative circles, whether it's integralism or localism, then there are varieties of conservatism that I think do line up pretty well with with the Jewish tradition. But then you have other issues like maybe criminal justice reform or environmental issues where you don't see a strong emphasis on the on the right. And yet you could find support within Jewish tradition. It's true. I, I would, you know, to me, like the Lubavitcher Rebbe is a wonderful example of, of someone who really transcended, you know, right and left on these, you know, a leader in prison reform, but obviously very traditional, you know, when it came to school prayer or a moment of silence, you know, the Lubavitcher Rebbe was probably the single most outspoken Orthodox leader um, on these issues. So I, I, I think I share, that's why my vision of conservatism is not 
the one that people sort of identify frozen in time from the 80s, the Reagan Thatcherite, you, you know, union. There, there's a lot. Reagan and Thatcher were great statesmen. And I, I'm very, you know, proud to have grown up during Reagan's tenure. And, and Thatcher's is someone that most people who, who appreciate their freedom and liberties and, and sovereignty, national sovereignty will, will no deliberate or, and, and deeply appreciate. But I, I don't think that that's what cons- conservatism is reducible to or it shouldn't be reducible to. So just in closing, you know, we're, if I counted correctly, you said 11 years of Tikva, whereas you're, you know, seven years in Chicago, five years in uh, Maimonides, Boston, four, five years, four years, five years in MTA, but 11 six years, years is six five, years in MTA. Six years in MTA. Okay. We won't want to shortchange MTA. <laughs> no, okay. no, definitely not. <laughs> there you go. But 11 years, again, I'm no math whiz. Coming on long, 11, coming on 11 years. Coming on the longer than all the Yeah. So, that you know, are you, you going to are you gonna now add up and tell everybody my age? I, I already, I already gave age. it away. I told you, I told everybody 69, I was born so in 1969. They can't, do, they can't do that already at this point. Then they don't deserve <laughs> they don't to know. Deserve. But exactly, <laughs> it's more a question of you know. At some point, do you get an itch for for something new, or or what's new within this enterprise for you that that's keeping it fresh? That's keeping you know. What are you looking towards in sort of the next the next ten years yeah. in your of, of your career? That's great. Look, I, I think one of the exciting things about Tikva is that it's very entrepreneurial. It's a place that really is always looking for the next opportunity, the next idea, the next partnership. Never rests on its laurels, really. And that's largely overwhelmingly a credit to to our executive director, Eric Cohen, who drives and pushes for for excellence and for new opportunities. And so I would say the next horizon, I think, at least for my work, I hope, is to take this model of Jewish classical education, which we've been developing at Tikva over the past 10 years, especially over the past two or three years with the creation of the Tikva Online Academy, some of our other, like the Truman Scholar, some of our other programs, but to take that model of Jewish classical education and now go back to schools that are really looking for a less you know, less governmentally driven or less sort of typical, you know, early 21st century curriculum with all of the buzzwords and with all of the the sacred cows of a certain kind of liberalism or a certain kind of progressivism and really offer another version of Jewish education, another version of Jewish education engaged specifically with the liberal arts, with the humanities, but to try to do that not on a national level, but on a local level, on a level of the community, because we know education really takes place in the day-to-day exchanges in the classrooms, in the in the base medrash, in the in the auditoriums, in the gyms. Like that's where people are formed. If you were talking about formation of minds and hearts and souls, you need a kind of durability. You need a kind of consistency. You need a kind of contact on a on a regular basis. And when we were saying earlier, when you said, Ari, that, you know, you didn't quite say it this way. I appreciate, oh, you're not an educator. You're a different, you're doing something else now. Well, you were right in the sense that I'm not getting to see students on a day-to-day basis. That's an exciting possibility of taking the Tikva educational vision or the, which is not, it's it's not Tikva per se. I would argue that it it goes back to Rav Hirsch. It goes back to the kind of education that Rav Soloveitchik got himself. Uh, it, you know, uh, an education, you know, that Rabbi Jonathan Sachs was afforded, that kind of education, but to really work in a, in a in an embedded, ingrained way with schools and communities that that are looking for something different, that are that feel that something's exhausted now with you know with the current curriculum or with the current way of thinking, that would be very exciting, and I think that's something that hopefully you know we'll see in in the next you know number of years. We're doing a, pr- a pilot program at the Frisch School a course in PPE, uh, philosophy, politics, economics, which may hold great promise for for this kind of integrated view of education. But Tikva is a a very exciting place. Anything, anything could happen. We could, you know, we could create our own school. Who knows? And that might be very exciting as well. So, okay. That's a great teaser right there. Right now with the University of Austin, you may have read (laughs) new university. So this is exciting. There's something afoot here in America and Israel, of course, 
And if I could be a part of it, I, I'd be honored and delighted. Okay, let's tell Barry Weiss to come on the show next. We'll get the uh, University of <laughs> yeah, Austin. Barry's also very busy. He's Barry, also very busy. Barry's also very busy. Yes, she, she definitely is. Uh, but yes, there, there's definitely an emerging movement of kind of independent or classically liberal thinkers that I think is becoming sort of a counterweight to maybe the progressive overreach of yeah. uh, you know, the Just last think, couple of years. Ari, it, if the Tikva summer program at Yale University, the scholars program, that's a two-week program. Imagine if it was a 12-week or a 24-week program. In other words, that, that was really what the curriculum looked like in a school. That would be a very powerful form of intellectual and informative engagement. And, and that's, I think that's like the next horizon. That's the next arena of our work. Amazing. Well, I, I don't know that I can afford fresh tuition, but uh, if I can, if I can audit, sign me up. Sounds sounds incredible. Um, and and like I said, I've done you know a uh, a program at Tick for myself. I guess about five years ago now, uh, which is very uh, enriching. And uh, I look forward to more because it's a, a, a unique and treasured resource uh, within the Jewish community. So. Rabbi Mark Gottlieb, thank you so much for sharing your story and for sharing the Tikva story now and for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure, Ari. Thanks so much for having me. And just a final reminder to join me along with almost 8,000 other people as a daily donor to dailygiving.org. You will be thrilled with yourself for days, months, and years to come. Dailygiving.org, proud sponsor of Jews You Should Know. Please join me in signing up right now. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at Jews You Should Know. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Jews You Should Know. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.